going to turn from just like some general instruction. And in verses 25 through 29, he's going to provide us with a personal testimony. He's going to talk about his own life. And he's going to show what happens to a person when they fail to heed that practical instruction that is given in verses 16 through 18. So we're going to get a paradox. We're going to get some practical instruction. We're going to get three proverbs and one problem. And then we're going to close it out with a personal testimony. Now, with that in mind, let's start by looking at verses 15 all the way through 18 as we dive into both the paradox and the practical instruction that the author gives to us. And what we ultimately should see from the combination of these verses is that apart from God, our efforts to respond to the realities of life under the sun will ultimately lead to our destruction. Now, the way that the author is going to go about demonstrating this is by showing us first, like we talked about, that paradoxical nature of life under the sun. Now, in order to understand this well, we need to look back a little bit to earlier in Ecclesiastes and even the book of Proverbs, right, which is this book of wisdom literature that immediately precedes the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we find throughout these pieces of wisdom literature is that there's a correlation that in a perfect world, in a vacuum, should exist between wisdom and righteousness and living a long life so that if you are wise and righteous, you should in a perfect world have a long life. And then there's also this correlation that we should expect to exist between wicked and foolish and having a short life, right? And to all of us, this uh, kind of makes sense as we just think about it very generally is that people who live good lives, who live wisely, take care of their families, save money, work out, do all of the healthy things, right? Like eat however many vegetables it is that we're supposed to eat in a day, some like unrealistic number that no one in this room is ever going to achieve, right? Like that we should, in theory, live these long and prosperous lives. Whereas if we don't listen to those things, our life is probably going to be shortened. And this is all really nice and good and happy in theory. But what the author points, us, points out to us in verse 15 is that we have all experienced a reality where this isn't always the case. You can probably think back to in your own life, someone that you know that has been close to you or close to people around you who you would have said is a good person, a righteous person, who lived wisely, and yet their life was cut prematurely short. And you also probably look out into the world and you see people that you think are not living wisely. They're living foolishly, that are wicked. And yet even within their wickedness and their foolishness, they continue to prosper. And so as we all understand this paradox that the author talks about in verse 15, like we said before, we are then left to reckon with this question of how do we then deal with this paradoxical reality? Well, I think if we look at our own lives and the lives of individuals throughout time, our natural response is to respond to this paradox by trying to game the game or finding a way to like circumvent this reality by fleeing to the far ends of what we view as like this uh, righteousness, wickedness spectrum in hopes that we're going to be able to somehow beat or overcome the system, right? So like we either attempt to achieve such an elevated state of righteousness that we feel that we are entitled to or guaranteed a long and prosperous life. And the way that we do this is that we impose our own moral code onto the world around us, right? Like we take what God says, but we maybe also add stuff to it or we ignore completely what God says and we create our own category of like people who do these things, fill it in for you. People who don't drink alcohol, people who homeschool, people who public school, people who do drink alcohol, whatever it looks like, we just create these arbitrary categories and we say people who do these things are going to be righteous. And then maybe if we do enough of those things, it's going to guarantee that we can live a long life. 
or we go to the other end of the spectrum, right? We abandon almost all of the confines of morality in pursuit of things which maximize our temporal pleasure since we aren't guaranteed a long life no matter what we do, right? So we either look at the paradox and we say, I'm going to overcome it. I'm going to beat the system through my own righteousness. Or we say, I can't beat the system, so why even try? I'm not going to try to be righteous. I'm just going to live it up for as long as I've got here on this earth. And then what comes next is going to be someone else's problem, right? Or like the way that uh, I've heard it phrased before is like that's a future Jake problem, right? And like present day Jake isn't going to worry about that. Now, this is what the author is referring to when he warns against this like being overly righteous or too wise and this concept of being overly wicked or a fool. Now, as you read this, you're probably thinking, I get how someone can be too wicked or foolish, but I still don't quite understand what it looks like or how someone can be overly righteous or too wise. And I also don't get, like, how does that eventually lead to someone's destruction, like we're told is going to occur right here in verse 16. Well, in order to understand that, we've got to continue on in the passage and look at the contrast that the author is actually creating for us in verse 18, right? Because our natural tendency is to say that the contrast the author is getting at here is wickedness and foolishness or being righteous and wise. But what we actually see in the text is that's not the contrast the author is creating. Instead, he's putting righteousness and uh, Uh, being wise in the exact same category as being wicked or foolish. And he's saying, as we see in verse 18, that instead of doing either of those things, the one that's going to prosper, the thing that we should do is to fear God. Right? Like what the author is doing is showing us that the choice to be overly righteous or overly wicked is not a choice between two options that exist on opposite ends of a spectrum, but they're instead two sides of the exact same coin. Or put another way, the author is not saying that there are three different paths we can take. One that takes us toward righteousness and foolish, or in, uh, being wise. One that takes us toward wickedness uh, and being foolish. And one that takes us toward fearing God. Instead, he's saying there are two paths you can take. You can either fear God, listen to his commandments, follow his statutes, honor and seek after him. Or you can choose the other path. And the vehicle for that for you may look like being overly righteous, self-righteous, adding things onto God's moral code in an attempt to try to game the game and like win against the system. Or it may look like this wickedness and foolishness. But either way, regardless of the vehicle that you choose to take, it's taking you down the same path. And that path leads to one destination. And it's destruction and death. Now we may walk down Uh, this path. And and as we do, we need to look at some of the phrasing in the words that we see uh, the author using here in the text. Some of the phrases that we see the author as he talks about this path that we should take of fearing God, if we look at verse 18, is he tells us that we should take hold of this and from it withhold not our hand, right? And so as we think of this idea of withholding not our hand or taking hold of this, we should be drawn back to what this book is ultimately a reflection on, which is the fall that we see in Genesis chapter 3. If you turn your Bibles or take a look back to Genesis chapter 3, what we see is that after Eve finishes her conversation with the serpent, she looks upon the tree which God commanded her and Adam to not eat from, And she sees that, quote, the tree was good for food. And that, quote, the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So what did she do? Well, we see in Genesis that she 
took of its fruit and ate. She reached out her hand. She took hold of that which she saw was good in order to attain wisdom apart from God. And just like that, sin which leads to death and destruction entered the world. So if we flip back now to here in Ecclesiastes, what we see is that the author is imploring us to not be like Eve. To not reach out our hand and take hold of these other paths or these other things that we see are good. But instead to, seek and at, uh, to not try to seek and attain wisdom apart from God, but to instead do what Eve was not able to do. And instead reach out our hand and take hold of not what we say is good, but what God says is good. That we are instead supposed to take hold of the command to reject this path of our own righteousness or being wise or being wicked. And instead, we're to humbly submit and obediently rest in the instruction of God. Otherwise, what we will find is destruction. And so from this, we can see that really the main idea that the author is ultimately going to drive us back toward is that we need to rest in a simple reliance on God's instruction to protect us from our own schemes. Because if we're reliant on our own schemes, if we're like Eve, if we follow this pattern that we can trace all the way through the Old Testament, whether it's Eve, whether it's Lot's wife who was told to not look back, and she does, and it immediately is turned into a pillar of salt, or like we're going to see with the author here, Solomon, as he talks about later on in our passage, if we're like them and we see and we hear the commands of God, but we aren't able to heed them, and instead we look at what we see is good, and we reach out our hand for them, it's ultimately going to lead to our destruction. But if we're able to rest in a simple reliance on God's instruction, then that's going to be able to protect us from our own schemes. And so then as the author continues on, he then goes on to give us three proverbs in one problem which further explain or expand upon why seeking independence from God will ultimately lead us down this path that is going to fail. And the reasons that we see for that come in verse 19 through 24, where what he's going to show us is that apart from God, the corruption of sin undermines the value of wisdom despite wisdom's power. Right? So like as we've been studying through the book of Ecclesiastes so far, we've seen that like wisdom itself is not a bad thing. In fact, it's a good and powerful, powerful thing that can be beneficial when rooted in its proper source. The author then continues kind of this theme or this thought as we get to proverb number one in verse 19 when he says that wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than 10 rulers who are in a city. Now we, living here in the United States, can at least at some point in time, we're like regardless of your feelings on the current political state, can at least look back at the framers and say that they thought that it was better to have more people in charge than less people in charge. I thought, they thought that was going to bring more wisdom and it was ultimately going to be better for this new nation that they birthed. And in the same way, the author here is saying that like, hey, one ruler is good, ten, ru ten rulers is like more good. Much better, right? Like if we've got 10 rulers, they're going to be able to provide more wisdom and it's going to be able to provide some additional strength to this city. So in the same way, the author is saying like this is how wisdom functions. You got a little bit of wisdom, that's good. You got 10 times as much wisdom, that's going to give you 10 times more strength. So with that in mind, that means that like we should be seeking this wisdom 
But we've already seen a category of wisdom that is not a good thing or doesn't add strength, but instead it leads to destruction. And so we need a way to kind of discern between these two different types of wisdom. And that's what the author is going to give us as he continues on in the passage. As he goes on into verse 20, he says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Now, a lot of us probably read this and we're like, Hold on, I thought we were talking about wisdom, but now the author has made this jump over to righteousness. So like, I'm not really tracking with what's going on. Well, what the author is doing here is that he's starting to show us that there's actually a relationship that exists between the value of wisdom and the presence of righteousness. You see, what's implied in the text is that, sure, wisdom is powerful, but it loses its power when it's separated from righteousness. And none of us are righteous. Therefore, the power of our wisdom apart from God is not sufficient to help us deal with the paradoxical nature of life. Now, if we're still not convinced, that's okay, because the author then goes on to give us an illustration in the form of this third proverb, which we find in verses 21 through 22 that continue to prove his point. We see in these verses that the author says, do not take heart. All the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. Now, when we read this proverb in the text of this idea of a relationship between righteousness and wisdom, we can start to understand how this is maybe played out in our own lives. Now, if we look at this passage and we look at kind of what's going on here, if people saying things about someone that we're not to take to heart, But we think about it in the terms of like, what if everybody in the world was perfectly righteous? They were perfectly righteous and their wisdom was not tainted or corrupted by sin. Well, if we lived in that world, then we would want to take to heart everything that someone has to say about us. Because it would be coming from a place of wisdom and righteousness, which would mean that no matter how uncomfortable it is for us to hear or how instructive it may be, it's coming out of a place of love, a place of good, a place of perfect wisdom that would ultimately lead to our benefit. But what the author is showing us here is that we don't live in that world, and the reason that you know that we don't live in that world is because you have said things about someone that weren't true, and you wouldn't want that person, now that you reflect back on the things that you've said, you wouldn't want that person to listen to or take to heart the things that you have said. You've probably experienced this in the way that you've maybe talked about a friend or a spouse, or you've said things to your children that in hindsight you then regretted because you realized that what seemed like wisdom at the time was really corrupted by the presence of sin and turned out not to be righteousness and wisdom but was wickedness and foolishness. And so this is what we see the author talking about here, is that this righteousness or wisdom that we think we have that could lead to our benefit and allow us to uh, achieve or grab hold of this substantial, lasting gain within the world isn't actually righteousness or wisdom at all. In fact, it's corrupted by sin, and that sin actually undermines the value of that wisdom despite its power. And our wisdom that we try to achieve apart from God suddenly becomes like a termite-infested house. It looks okay from the outside. It looks like it's solid. It's useful. But the reality is, it's dangerous. Because it's been corrupted. It's been eaten away. The power of it itself has been taken away from the inside. 
All of us have this sin-caused corruption in our life. So apart from God, we aren't going to be able to have this righteousness or wisdom that it is that we need. So we need God's protection. Now, after showing us the corrupting power of sin within the wisdom that we seek to achieve apart from God, the author is then going to continue on further to undermine our confidence in our own wisdom by showing us a problem that he himself encountered while trying to wrap his mind around how to best live during life here under the sun. And ultimately, he's going to give us this problem that demonstrates our inability to truly grasp or reckon with the whole reality of what God is doing in his overarching plan for all of time. This is what we see as we go into verse 23 and we read the author say, all this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? Here we see that the author dove into, he committed to this search for wisdom apart from God. And what he came to realize in the middle of that search is that he, Solomon, the man who attained more wisdom than anyone who had existed before his time, was unable as he sought wisdom apart from God to truly grasp or understand God's plan for accomplishing his purposes. The phrase the author uses of that which has been that we see uh, right here in verse 24 is actually a reference back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 where the author is discussing the work of God and he states that which has been, or excuse me, that which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. So this phrase that which has been is actually referring to the work of God. So what the author is saying about the work of God is that as he sought to bring that work in close to where he could uh, understand it through his own wisdom that he sought to gain or grasp apart from God, all he found was that actually the work that God was doing and his understanding of it was far off and was beyond his reach. He couldn't grasp hold of it. This is an incredible truth that the author describes to uh, here that we need to like listen to and take hold of and recognize today. And the truth is this, that God is doing a deep work as he orchestrates everything that exists throughout all of time to bring about the redemption of his creation. He is doing a deep deep work. As we look even just through some of the historical events that we see in the Old Testament, as we see the way that the God of all creation uses the rise and fall of empires, the lives of individual people, as he exercises his dominion over creation himself, doing all of this to orchestrate what we're just about to celebrate in a few weeks from now, which is the birth of this Messiah in a way that fulfilled all of the prophecy that came before it. We can just start to get a small glimpse of the depth of the world work that God is doing. And we, under our own wisdom, apart from God, are never going to be able to fully grasp hold of this. We need to allow this truth to be both a correction and a comfort to us as we seek to navigate life under the sun. It's a correction by revealing to us that our wisdom is insufficient to fully understand how God plans to accomplish his purposes. So we need to stop relying upon our own wisdom. Your plans, your schemes, your thoughts on what you need to do in this life in order to find meaningful, lasting gain will not be sufficient if they do not find their source in the one who is the one that's actually doing this deep work. 
and then it's a comfort to us by showing us that while we may experience things in this life that just don't make sense, that violate the principles that our self-found wisdom say should be absolutes, that appear to be a paradox that we cannot understand, we are able to rest in the truth that God is still at work accomplishing his purposes, even when we don't understand them. And it's a comfort because the God of the Bible is carrying out a plan that is not dependent on our own understanding, but that he in his own wisdom is going to bring that work into completion for the redemption of his people. And that should be a comfort to us here today. So now that the author has given us this instruction on how we are to respond to the paradoxical reality of our existence and has then supported this point by undermining the confidence that we have in our own wisdom, the wisdom that finds its source apart from God by showing both our own wisdom's corruption by sin and its insufficiency to grasp the totality of God's work, he then moves on to provide us a personal testimony in verses 25 through 29. And what he's going to show us in this personal testimony is how he saw these ideas that he's been talking about play out in his own life as he walked down the path of seeking a life independent from the wisdom and instruction from God. And ultimately what the author is going to show us through his personal experience is that apart from God, no one is righteous. Therefore, we need protection from our schemes. Now, the author begins taking us on this journey through his own life experience in verse 25 by showing us that he tried both approaches to living apart from God. He tried to achieve and grab hold of great wisdom apart from God that would allow him to craft his own understanding of how to live under the sun, and he also tried to live in wickedness and folly. But then as we continue down into verse 26, what we see is that both of these efforts led him ultimately to the same result. And that result was something that was actually worse than the fate he was trying to avoid when the journey began. As we look at the text, verse 25 tells us, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. So I sought both wisdom and I sought wickedness. And then so we say, what did you find? Well, verse 26 says, and I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. It's so interesting that at the beginning of this passage, the problem or the paradox that the author was trying to solve was how do I essentially guarantee a long life? How do I overcome for as long as possible the inevitability of death as if that was the ultimate enemy? And then yet here he says, in my journey to solve this problem, to overcome my paradox, not only was I not able to solve that problem, but what I actually found in the journey was worse than the fate that I sought to avoid in the first place. And what was that thing that was worse? It was a woman. Now, in order to fully understand and apply this correctly, we first need to understand a few things about King Solomon's life, right? Because if you take this in isolation and you read it and then you like look over at the man or woman sitting next to you and you're like, I knew it. 
I knew that you were the problem the entire time. Then not only are you going to misapply the text, but you're also probably going to have a really quiet ride on the way home from church today. So in order to save you from that, I want to talk about a couple of the things that we see from the Old Testament about King Solomon's life, who is actually uh, writing and giving us this personal testimony. Now, in 1 Kings chapter 2, what we see is the establishment of Solomon's reign. And as his father David is on his deathbed and is passing on the role of king to his son Solomon, we see Solomon receive the instruction to, quote, keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do. So this is the basis for Solomon's rule according to his father David. It's listening and keeping the commandments, the rules, and testimonies that God has given through the law. And then as we continue on to chapter 3, we see a further interaction that is now occurring between Solomon and God, where Solomon is talking to God about his father David, and the way that we see him describe David is having walked in, quote, righteousness and in uprightness of heart before God. And Solomon recognizes that it's this quality of righteousness and uprightness before God that was ultimately the reason for what we can consider a relatively successful reign of David during his time on the throne. So in light of this, Solomon in this conversation with God asks God for wisdom. And God actually grants it to him, saying to Solomon, because you, Solomon, asked for this wisdom and have not asked for yourself long life for riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. So it's interesting here that we see what Solomon originally asked for not a long life. It's not what he's trying to achieve here in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Instead, what he says is, I want to know not my wisdom, but your wisdom, God. I want you to give me the ability to understand what it is that you say about how I should live my life. And because he seeks after this source of life, this source of wisdom, as it's rooted in God, God says, I will grant it to you. And Solomon prospers in light of that. But God gives him instruction that comes on the tail end of this. He tells him, that as he continues on in his life and lives with this wisdom that God has given him, that it's dependent on this. He says, if you, Solomon, walk in my God's ways, keep my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. So it's interesting. We see it coming back to this time between righteousness or God's wisdom and a lengthening of days, right? As contrasted to what God said earlier is that like you shouldn't seek your own righteousness and wisdom in order to lengthen your days because it's not going to work anyway. But because you have sought my wisdom, I will grant it to you. And because of that as well, I am going to bless you. Now we shouldn't read this as an automatic like A plus B equals C equation, but it is a trend that we start to see developing here in God's interaction with Solomon. What we see here is that Solomon is told by his father, who he regards as righteous and upright, that he must keep God's commandments as he carries out his rule as king. And Solomon then asked for wisdom from God, and because he sought to know God's commandments and how to keep them, declaring his dependence rather than his independence from God, Solomon was given great wisdom, and God promised him that he would also lengthen Solomon's days if Solomon kept God's commandments. 
So Solomon was promised the very thing he later discusses seeking here in Ecclesiastes as long as he maintained and lived out his dependence on God and his commands. But we then fast forward in Solomon's story to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we see that Solomon does not keep God's commands. He abandons them, relying upon his own wisdom to grab hold of that which he seeks in life. And the way he does this is by doing what? Accumulating women. He accumulates many wives, we're told, from foreign lands in direct rebellion to God's instruction. It's interesting because we're going to see why this is important in the text in a second, but he actually accumulated, uh, 1 Kings tells us, 1,000 women. 700 wives or 300 wives, 700 concubines, which sounds like a lot to manage, right? And then the result here that we see, we are told, is that because he accumulated all these wives, because he did not listen to the statutes and the commands of God, what actually happened is the thing that he sought apart from God, which was these women, these wives, were told, are what turned away his heart from God. His wives turned away his heart from God. So if we take this understanding of kind of Solomon's story, and then we jump back and imprint it here in Ecclesiastes, or we like follow this hyperlink back in the book of Ecclesiastes, what we see here is Solomon saying, I sought to achieve my own wisdom apart from God, and this led me down a path of wickedness, And on that path, I found something more bitter than death, which for me was women who turned my heart away from God. Is this not your experience as well? That in the areas of life where you have sought independence from God, what you found was something, some sort of temptation, which grabbed hold of you, ensnared you, and enslaved you, and then turned your heart away from God. For you, it may not have been sexual in nature like that which captured Solomon. Although for some of you, it was and it is. And we would be foolish to not carefully heed the warning of the special dangers of sexual sin. But for the rest of you, I am sure that there is something in your life that you have encountered in the different areas or parts of your life where you continue to refuse to submit to the commandments of God that desire to grab hold of your heart, those things that you refuse to give over to God, those things desire to take hold of your heart, and they desire to turn it away from God. And what you're going to find is that they will destroy you in a fate more bitter than death itself. Because death is bad, but death with a heart turned away from God, or even more, life with a heart away from God is actually, the author tells us, more bitter than death. So what do we do in the face of this reality? Well, Solomon tells us. He goes on, as we saw, to say, he who pleases God escapes her, escapes this woman whose fate is more bitter than death, but the sinner is taken by her. That means that if we want to escape That temptation which desires to drag our hearts away from God, we should seek to, quote, please God. Which is just a different way of uh, phrasing or saying what he told us to do all the way back in verse 18, which is to fear God. To do what Solomon was told to do, but ultimately failed to do, which was to keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies. This is how we escape her. This is how we escape that fate. And it's interesting here, the language that the author uses. 
<clears throat> he doesn't say that he overcomes her. He doesn't say that he faces her down and defeats her. Instead, what does he do? He runs away. He says, you're not going to beat this. Your only hope is to flee, to be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. Run away, whatever it takes. Leave your garments. Get out of there. You cannot beat this on your own. Instead, go down the path that follows my commandments. That is how we ensure that we don't find this fate that is more bitter than death. Now, some of you may hear this and be tempted to respond by saying, nope, this is not me. I don't have a thousand wives. I've got one, and she is all that I can handle, right? Solomon seems like he really wandered away from God, but not me. I haven't. Sure, I, like, take some, like, little excursions away for a short period of time during certain parts of the day, but I'm not really in any danger. But Solomon beckons us all to listen attentively to this warning by showing us that we are all at risk of being ensnared by this dangerous, heart-stealing temptation. That's what's going on in verses 27 through 29. Solomon is showing us that as he walked down this path of independence from God and sought to understand what he described as, quote, the scheme of things or how life under the sun truly worked so that he could grab hold of that which he saw was good, what he found was that all of mankind fails to be truly righteous as we all fail to submit to the plans of God and attempt to replace them with our own schemes. <clears throat> He's going to show us this by telling us that in this search to find the scheme of things, he looked among a thousand men to see who was righteous, who had wisdom that was not corrupted by sin, and all he found was one man who at least kind of came close to this. And then he searched for this among a thousand women, a thousand wives, remember, back to the life of Solomon, right? So he searched for this among a thousand women, and he didn't find a single one who was righteous. So the question that you're probably asking, right, and like this is not a commentary on all women. He is saying, I had a thousand wives, and they were all terrible, right? Like they were all unrighteous. Also, there was a lot of really bad men. There was one who was kind of okay. And the question we should ask is, who was that one man? Well, Solomon already told us back in 1 Kings. It was his dad. Right? It was his father, David, who he said walked in righteousness and uprightness before God. But there's a problem with that, right? Like if we are familiar with the story of David, we know that the arc of his life was one of righteousness and uprightness before God. That kind of in the big 10,000 foot view, he did seek after God, right? And sought to honor and pursue and keep his commandments. But even he didn't do it perfectly. David was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He fell into the exact same sin that his son later fell into. He found for himself a woman who ensnared his heart and turned it away from God, at least for a period of time. This is why Solomon continues on in his concluding statement in verse 29 to show us that God made man upright to walk in righteousness before him, but that, as we saw in the garden, as we see in Solomon's personal testimony, and as I bet we can probably see in our own lives, that really no one is righteous. He found one man that got close, but even David missed the mark, which means that no one's wisdom is uncorrupted by sin. There are no, in our category, of fallen men and women exceptions to this rule. And because of this, we are led astray by our own schemes. 
by the wisdom that we have sought apart from God. Because Solomon had wisdom, even though he had a lot of it, right? Like more money, more problems, more wisdom, more problems when it's corrupted by sin. Solomon had a lot of wisdom. It got corrupted by sin. It got him into a lot of trouble, right? Same way in our lives. We've got wisdom, but guess what? None of us are righteous. It is corrupted by sin, and it is going to destroy us. So what do we do with this reality? We do what we were told to do by Solomon and his instruction at the beginning of the passage. We go back to the main point of this entire section, which is that we need to rest in a simple reliance on God's instruction to protect us from our own schemes. Now some of you are sitting here today saying, I don't have any schemes. I'm just living my life one day at a time. My response to you is that if you take a close examination of your life, I promise you will see that you do, in fact, have schemes that you are living out. Areas of your life where you are choosing to live according to your own wisdom apart from God instead of according to his. For some of you, this may look exactly like it did for Solomon. You may be sitting here today and God is calling you to recognize that the things you look at on the internet that you don't think are a big deal and are simply going to fulfill some unmet desire that you have or help you blow off steam at the end of a hard day are in fact going to lead to your destruction if you do not flee from them and seek God and his commandments. Or maybe it's a relationship that you think isn't a big deal. He or she are just friends, and it's no big deal that you spend some time together or rely on them to fulfill some unmet need that you have in your relationship. But if Solomon were here today, he would echo the fatherly plea that we have received from him, which is, that to, which is to run away from this temptation, or it will take hold of your heart, turn it away from God, and destroy your life. Or maybe, it for, maybe for you, it's not something sexual, but it's your desire to accumulate wealth and stability, right? For some of you <clears throat> here today, know that God wants to use you to work in you, to call you to a work or a lifestyle that you have been unwilling to follow him into because it would mean having to give up some of the wealth or security that you have worked so hard to accumulate. And as you recognize God's call, you replace his wisdom with your own scheme by saying, sure, God, I'll do that later. Once I've achieved a certain accomplishment or reached this level of financial security, once I've retired, then I will have the time and the resources to do what it is that you are calling me to. But as we see, if we like turn to Luke 12, God may reply to that line of thinking with a very ecclesiastical response by pointing out the foolishness of this type of wisdom. Because this very night, your soul may be required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose then will they be? Whatever it is for you, I'm confident that there is some area in your life where you are seeking to live according to your own wisdom apart from God. In my encouragement, Encouragement to you today is to abandon this way of life and instead rest in a simple reliance on God's instruction to protect you from your own schemes. Now the second thing that we need to do or the way that we need to respond to this is by recognizing that the paradox of the righteous dying while the wicked live is not a problem to be solved but a pattern to be emulated. You see, in the schemes of man, 
as we look at them, if it was up to us in our own plans and our schemes, they would have never led Jesus to the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.18 tells us, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. According to the wisdom of man that we see here in the paradox at the beginning of the passage, Jesus' obedience in going to the cross looks like foolishness because why would the righteous die while the wicked continue to live and prosper? Well, the reason is because this paradox is not a problem to be solved, but a pattern to be emulated. When Jesus went to the cross, he did so as the only righteous man. We said before that there was no exceptions. It turns out there is one. David got close, but even he fell short. But Jesus completed it all the way to the end. He walked faithfully in the statutes of God, even to death on the cross, which according to our plans and our schemes doesn't make any sense. But he, being innocent, not deserving death, went obediently to die on behalf of the righteous, or on the behalf of the wicked. And as Jesus, a righteous man, was handed over to death, Luke tells us that Barabbas, a known insurrectionist and murderer, a wicked man, was released and given life. And this pattern continues on as Jesus, a righteous man, goes to the cross and not only takes the place of the wicked Barabbas, but he takes the place of wicked men and women who have sought out many schemes just like you and me. It is into this pattern of the righteous dying on behalf of the wicked to give them life that Jesus calls us. This is what Jesus is talking about in Luke 9 when he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. This is what Paul means in Romans 6 when he says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Some of you in here today have yet to embrace and rest in this truth. You reject the wisdom of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what God is calling you to today is to come off of that path and onto the path of trusting and following in his wisdom and righteousness. To recognize the destruction that your wisdom has and will cause in your own life. To stop trying to live life apart from him and to instead embrace the work of Christ so that you can rest in a simple reliance on God's instruction to protect you from your own schemes. And for some of you today, the way that that starts, what that looks like right here, right now, before you leave, is that you show your simple reliance on God's instruction to protect you from your schemes by starting with the instruction to repent and believe. And for the rest of you, that looks like examining where it is in your life that you are walking down that path, trusting in your own righteousness, in your own wisdom that leads to destruction. 
in making the decision today that you're no longer going to walk down that path, that you're going to heed the instruction, the wisdom of Solomon, and you're going to say, my own righteousness is corrupted by my sin, but your perfect son has a wisdom and displays a wisdom that is uncorrupted by sin as he went to the cross on my behalf. And because of that, because your wisdom, your schemes, your plans, God, are what led to my redemption, then I'm going to trust that that's good enough for the rest of my life as well. That's what we are going to be remembering as we now move into a time of communion. This time of communion is going to be a time where we can come together. And for some of you, it needs to be a time where you repent of the areas in your life where you have been walking down this path of your own wisdom and righteousness. And you need to confess that the perfect wisdom of God was displayed upon the cross and that you need to turn back to that in your life. And for some of you today, you just need to rest in that. For some of you, you've just been working and toiling so hard and you are tired because your wisdom and righteousness just isn't getting it done. It is not giving you that lasting satisfaction or gain that you desire. And you need to maybe for the first time today rest in the righteousness and wisdom of Jesus Christ on the cross by giving your life over to him. I'm going to invite the band up and as we do, I encourage you to join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the righteousness and the wisdom that you displayed in sending your son to the cross. I thank you that you've not left us up to our own wisdom and our own schemes in this life here, Lord, but that you and the deep work that you are doing did something that doesn't make sense to us, Lord, that you enacted this paradox that we are to follow by sending your son to the cross on our behalf and that because of his righteousness, we as the wicked are able to prosper and live, Lord. And so I pray that for those of us here who do not yet know you, Lord, that you would just open our eyes to this glory, Lord, to the wisdom and the righteousness that you've displayed before us in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross, Lord, that we would be able to walk in the light of that righteousness. And I pray for those that who do know you, Lord, but have wandered off down this path that leads us to destruction, Lord, that we would just humbly accept this fatherly correction today, Lord, that we would recognize that your righteousness and your wisdom are better than our own as it is corrupted by sin and that we would hand those things over over to you, Lord. We pray all of these things in the name of your Son. Amen.